to introduce our speaker. Now, here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, Enzo's going to meet someone, and he's going to say, yeah, I was preaching at church last night, and it was uh, an intimate crowd, but Bethel led worship. (laughs) Isn't that right? And so... um, he is a preacher that matches the worship. So will you give him an Elam Wimbledon welcome? We love you, Enzo. Thank you. Yeah, I'm flying over there next month to preach, so anyone who wants to come will be... Good evening. Are you happy? If you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. I want to read there. Verse 1 and 2, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And um, the Apostle Paul writes here and says, I beseech you therefore, I'm reading from the New, New King James here, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable Service. Another way of rendering that would be to say, which is your spiritual act of worship. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And so, Father, tonight as we come around your word, may you speak to us by your spirit. May truth penetrate our hearts and may we be transformed that little bit more by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the uh, challenges when we read scripture and when we open our Bibles is that we find that It has been separated into chapters and verses. How many of you know the original Bible had no verses and chapter separations? It had different books, but there wasn't the separation. And it can sometimes be a temptation to jump into Scripture and read a verse and then actually not appreciate the significance of what's gone before that lays the foundation of what we're about to read. Are you following me? And... Romans is one, of these, is one of those powerful books where for a whole 11 chapters before this 12th chapter, the Apostle Paul, in one, of his, in one of his greatest treatises, has been, you know, expounding on the power of the gospel. You know, in Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. He goes on to talk about the mercy and the grace of God that has been extended to us through Christ. That powerful chapter, Romans 8, where he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He talks in that chapter about being led by the Spirit, that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. He says we're more than conquerors through Christ that loved us. He says no one can lay a charge against God's elect. All these powerful truths of the gospel, the justification, the righteousness that comes to us, through faith in Christ. And so when he comes to this verse here in Romans 12, he's speaking in terms of everything he's just said before. 
And that's why many times if we just read that and we forget what he's just written, we do a disservice and we miss the power of the point. Are you following me? And so in Romans 12 verse 1, as I've just read, Paul is saying, now in light of everything I've told you about the power of the gospel, about the righteousness of Christ, the good news that his righteousness is now your righteousness, about the freedom that you now have in the Christian life, about the fact that you don't have to fear anything in this world, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. In light of all this, he says, I beseech you, brethren, throw yourself on the mercy of God. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Understand the power of his grace. Understand the power of his mercy. By the way, you know tonight the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourself. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. You follow me? Grace is where God gives us what we don't deserve. That is our salvation. None of us deserve salvation. We all deserve hell. But God gives us grace in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel means good news. But there's the other side to that. And mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. In grace, he gives us the gift of salvation. In mercy, he withholds judgment to all of us because we're all deserving of eternal judgment. And Paul says, think about everything I've told you. Now, throw yourself on this mercy. You know, at judgment day, there's only going to be one of two things every human being says to God. They're either going to say, or, or should I say, put it more like this way, either... The human being will say to God, your will be done. Or God will look at them and say, your will be done. You don't want your will to be done outside of the will of God. You're following me? Mercy. Mercy is when God withholds what we should be getting in terms of his judgment. And Paul says, in light of this, throw yourself on God's mercy and present your bodies as living sacrifices. Okay, so this is a picture here of Old Testament sacrifice. The people of God in the Old Testament, when they committed a sin, they would bring an animal, maybe a bull, a goat, or a sheep, and they would bring this animal to a bloody altar, and slit the throat of the animal, and place the animal on the altar as a sign that they were acknowledging that they had moral culpability before God, that their sin needed a sacrifice. But they knew deep down, and they knew that, that no animal, no blood of any animal could ever take away our sins. And this was all pointing forward to the ultimate, all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice through the blood of Jesus Christ that would take away the sins of the world. Amen? And Paul says here that in light of everything God has done, we can present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. This isn't a sacrifice for sin, because that sacrifice has already been made. But this is a consecration. This is a yieldedness where you and I make that decision in a, as an act of worship to say, God, in light of everything you've done for me, the only thing I can give you is my life. 
And he defines it here, interestingly enough. He doesn't use the term heart or spirit or mind. He says bodies, physical bodies. And this is an amazing thing, you know, because so many people think of spirituality as merely that which doesn't concern the physical. You follow me? You know, we think of spiritual activities as spiritual activities, things that don't concern the physical life. And yet God is concerned with wholeness of life. You know that word holiness? Holiness is about a wholeness of life. God isn't interested just in what we do for an hour on corporate worship on a Wednesday or on a Sunday. He knows that in order for him to have all of us, our bodies have to be given to him so that everything we do in life is an act of worship. Okay? Our leisure is an act of worship. Our work is an act of worship. Our family time is an act of worship. We hand our bodies over to him. And when he's got our bodies, he's got our heart and our spirit and our mind and everything else in between. Now what's the problem with living sacrifices? The problem with living sacrifices is they like to crawl off the altar. We're not called to die, amen? We're called to live. The Christian life is a paradox. We die to live. And so here, when he says, offer your body as a living sacrifice, he means to put it on that altar and not to crawl back off it again. Because when you leave it on the altar before God, it's in that place of worship, it's in that place of consecration, it's in that place of yieldedness that the Holy Spirit begins to transform, that the Holy Spirit begins to intensify his sanctifying power. It's in that place that his fire begins to work in our life and he begins to burn away the desires of the flesh and he creates within us the desires for the things of God. Many of us have come out now of this season of prayer and fasting and fasting is one of those ways, one of those disciplines that God has given us to consecrate ourselves so that God can intensify what he wants to do in our hearts. Fasting is not a hunger strike. Like we're trying to get God to do something he doesn't want to do. It's not about moving God. God is always moving. God's power is always flowing. It's about us being yielded and placed in the place where God can flow in our life. So imagine that the Holy Spirit and the work of God is like a a mighty river. When we pray, when we fast, when we place our body on the altar, when we worship, when we have attitudes of gratitude, we move ourselves closer to that river. We move ourselves so that we're positioned to receive and to allow God to flow through our lives. And Paul's saying, in light of everything you know, this is your calling. This is your act of worship. And the greatest act of worship, how many of you know, is a sacrifice. Isn't one of the dangers, brothers and sisters in the church today, that our worship, or at least what we refer and define as worship, can sometimes be more akin to entertainment? Would you agree? Sometimes. And what I mean by that is that we base worship on how good the music is and how much um, we were blessed by the worship. Someone once said to me, I weren't very blessed by the worship this morning. But the point is not what you got, but what you gave. See, when people came to give in worship and sacrifice under the old covenant, the worship was defined not by what they got out of it, primarily, but what they gave. And so our worship is what we give. Now today, we don't have to, how many of you are thankful? We don't have to bring a sheep and a goat or a turtle dove to church. 
but we bring our bodies and we bring our gratitude and there's always something to thank God for. What does it say? Count your blessings one by one and then you'll be amazed at what the Lord has done. Present your body a living sacrifice. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, in this verse, God is offering a transaction to us. In fact, it's not really a transaction. What he's offering is a transformation. Okay? And what he's saying is, look, if you will... um, Throw your, yourself, your life down. If you will lay your life down before me, if you will put yourself on my altar, let, let's, let's, use, let's, term, let's use another term for the altar that in light of this passage would be accurate. If you will put yourself on my operating table, then as you yield yourself to me, as you present your body, as an act of worship, as your life and everything in your life is handed over to me, then you become a candidate, God says, for my fire. You become a candidate for my transforming power. And because you are consecrated on the altar, you see, holiness means to be set apart. And when something went onto the altar, it was given to God. It was a sacrifice to God. So when we make that decision to turn away from the things of this world and hand ourselves over to God on his altar, then God says, in that place, I will bring transformation. And there is a two-sided arrangement here. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the transformation that Paul is speaking about here is that supernatural, cataclysmic, Powerful, creative means by which the Holy Spirit changes our mind, changes our orientation. In fact, the word here in verse 2 in the original Greek is the word metamorpho. And we know where we get our word metamorphosis from. There's only one other place in the original Greek text in the New Testament where that word is found. Who knows where it is? I've got a 50 pound note in my pocket for you if you know. Like Usher's got the 50 pound, it's all right, but anyway, he'll give it to you, amen. All right, anyone know? Well, Genesis was in Hebrew, Eloi, we're talking Greek now, New Testament Greek. Boom, she said it, transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured, think about that, when it says that the, the, the gospel writer said that the... Um, his clothes became more white than any human detergent could make them. Okay, it would have been the greatest advert for Daz and, you know, all those washing powders. Where literally the, the glory of Jesus started to effuse through his clothing as the brightness and glory of his power was manifested. That was the metamorphosis where that word, we get that word metamorphosis, and it's the only other place in the New Testament where that word is used. And in our modern sense, we understand the concept of how the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. There, there is almost no continuity between those two things. That is the power 
of the transformation in our mind and heart and lives that God wants to render. Isn't that awesome? And so he says that there, there is a negative, don't be conformed to this world, but there is a positive. Or you say there is an indicative of not being uh, conformed to this world and the imperative of being transformed, of being metamorphosized by the supernatural power of God so that we go from being a worm to being a butterfly. So that we, uh, we come forth as God uh, intends us to be. And uh, one... Um, Version says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. This is about God breaking us out of the confinement and containment and limitations of this world and releasing us into the freedom and the inheritance and the experience of what is ours in Christ. And just because we are Christians, we must not assume that we are experiencing the full benefits of what Jesus died for us on the cross to have. There is a difference between what is positional and what is experiential. Positionally, you're free. But experientially, you may not know that right now. Or you may not experience that right now in certain areas of your life. The process of sanctification, where the Lord is making us more like Jesus every day, is about making what is positional experiential in every area of our life. You can whisper hallelujah if you want to. (laughs) Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here is the tension. Because, you know, when I read scripture, I've realized you can't really get along with scripture unless you embrace the paradoxes. Are you following me? God is one being, but he's three persons. Are you seeing the paradox? Paradox is not a contradiction. A contradiction is something which is incompatible. A paradox is something which appears incompatible, but in closer inspection and sometimes beyond the human understanding, there's a synchronicity and a compatibility there, yeah? And the paradox here, and the paradox for us in this tension in which we live, is that the gospel is both something which wants to root us in this world and wants to take us out of this world at the same time. Think about it. The Bible says we're in the world. Jesus said, don't take them out. In John 17, he said, I pray for them. Don't take them out of this world. Where Christians make the mistake sometimes is they think, well, I'm not going to be conformed to this world. The Bible says don't love the world. So therefore, what I'm meant to do is go live on a monastery on a hill for the rest of my life. Is that what Jesus commanded? He says, listen, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You don't take a lamp and put it under the, under the lampstand. You put it on top so its brightness can shine. And so Jesus made it clear in his coming to this world where he took on our nature, where the Son of God took on human nature in the incarnation, that we are called to be in this world. There's no doubt about it. And the associations of Jesus when he was with this world, they called him a friend of publicans and sinners. And then there's the other side which is about being holy, being separate. Are you following me? Now, at face value, they look contradictory. But what it is, is God is saying, the boat should be in the sea, but the sea must never get into the boat. And there is no way of the gospel penetrating society unless we embrace both sides of the paradox. That side which emphasizes the need to be set apart, To understand that we are different. In fact, the word holy, that's what it means. The word holy means different. 
at its basic root level, it means to be different, it means to be set apart, to be sanctified, means to be set apart. But in the midst of that differentiation, and in the midst of that sense of being set apart, we must also be participatory. There is that balance, again, of being away from it and in it. Participatory and at the same and in the same way, keeping that level of distinction. And that tension, would you not agree, is a challenge for us. It's a challenge because it requires a lot of wisdom in how we navigate our lives and how we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. Amen? The Apostle John says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. You know, when he says that, what's he talking about? What does he mean, do not love the world? Well, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. So he's not talking about that world, the inhabited world. He's talking about the system that is the spirit of the age, the system that is set up against God, that is anti-God. That is the world that we're not called to love. That system that is set up to oppose and to seek to undermine the work of God in our generation. It's amazing, you know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. John, in his, le- in his letter, first letter, talks about the lust of the eyes. He talks about the lust of the flesh and the pride of life in relation to the world. And Jesus was tempted in every one of those areas. When the devil says Jesus had been fasting, maybe some of you were experiencing that temptation recently. You know that, those rocks that the devil pointed to? They look like bread, actually. They look like bread. He says, if you're the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. When he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, said, if you bow down and worship me, all will be yours. Do you know the amazing thing about all of these temptations? That there's a legitimacy to every one of them. Didn't Jesus have the right to eat bread? When he, was got, when he was being tempted to throw himself off the temple, what does the devil do? He quotes the scripture. Didn't Jesus have the right to quote the scripture? And as far as owning all the kingdoms of the world, isn't that where Jesus is now? You see, I'm convinced that when we understand that what God wants is our hearts, all those other things come into place. See, Jesus said, after that temptation, after the resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And at the end, in the book of Revelation, it says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. So the very temptation that Satan brought to Jesus was something that was going to rightfully come to him anyway. But it wasn't the time, you follow me? It wasn't the time. In the same way that Jesus had the right to eat the bread, but it wasn't the time, because he was fasting. And so that's how the flesh works, is that it it appears legitimate, but it tries to make something that's legitimate, illegitimate. Are you following me? And so in the same way, God isn't so concerned with um, what we have or what we do in and of itself. He's concerned about the position of our hearts in terms of what we do with our hearts when we have what we do and we do what we do. Is that making sense? Think about the rich young ruler. God hasn't got a problem with wealth in itself. Money in itself is not evil. 
But where's your heart? Where's the heart? You following me? Where's the heart? Because when the heart is in the right place, when we present our bodies as living sacrifices, when we seek first God's kingdom, he says all these other things will be added to you as well. That's how he works. He wants our heart. And when we're orientated in the right position, when our bodies are in that place of consecration and of yieldedness, he's able to transform us to live as effective butterflies for him in this generation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're called to live free. We're called to live wisely. We're called to navigate that tension. And what we've read today in Romans 12 is that exhortation to present our bodies as living sacrifices. To allow ourselves not to be conformed to this world, but to allow the metamorphosizing power of the Holy Spirit to change our lives. Amen? Okay, let's stand with me and I'll pray. Thank you.